Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us at the Institute for Government for this event about business support in the coronavirus crisis. I'm joined by a splendid panel. Baroness Nikki Morgan. I first enjoyed the pleasure of working with Nikki when, during that height of excellent government, the coalition period, when she was a PPS in the business department and I was a special advisor there, as soon as we lost contact, she did much better and started rising through the ranks, through the Treasury, and then to head up the Department for Education, and then to chair the Treasury Select Committee, and finally, most recently, to be Secretary of State at the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. Then here's Martin Matej from the Federation of Small Business. I'd like to thank the FSB for sponsoring this event. Martin's responsible for the FSB's policy and advocacy and has a wealth of experience in, across business, including three decades of running his own businesses. And then finally, Josh Hardy is Deputy Director General at the CBI and has needed to cover a bewilderingly wide brief from industrial strategy to Brexit. He's previously held a variety of jobs, including the group director role for corporate responsibility at Tesco. Now, it's become something of a cliche to quote Lenin at this time, but I'm going to anyway. There are decades where nothing happens, and then there are weeks where decades happen. We at the Institute for Government decided to write a report on bailout policy during some of those very weeks. And during those weeks, the apparent fiscal splurge of 12 billion pounds, or three aircraft carriers, let's call it, which was unveiled in the budget of the 11th of March, was superseded by tens of billions more in the weeks that followed in grants, furlough payments, taxes foregone and more. By the time the OBR finally was able to come around and toss up all the money, it was around 100 billion pounds had been devoted towards supporting the economy in the coronavirus crisis. And this is before we even look at what will be the main subject of today's discussion, the government's debt guarantees for business lending. The Chancellor Rishi Sunak portrayed these as being about 330 billion in loan support. To give that some other kind of context, that's perhaps twice as much as the SME debt that's currently outstanding before the crisis started. And even this is before what might be regarded as the biggest business intervention of all of them, and one that's a credit to a strong campaign from the Federation of Small Business itself. Bounce back loans, which are 100% guaranteed loans on bank lending to smaller businesses. As of a week ago, when I started preparing these thoughts, that around £14 billion have been lent in just three weeks on this. I understand the figures are now currently more like £18 billion. This is the fastest growing business support scheme of all time, by my reckoning. And it comes down to something like 40 companies supported every minute of the working day with a million pounds. So this is quite unprecedented sums of money. So the numbers are astonishing, but everyone's been welcoming them. And there's been a good reason for this. As we summarized in our report, we need a recovery if we're going to come out of this crisis. And we need a strong corporate sector, in particular, the small business sector that so often drives so much of our activity. And so we need to safeguard that vital commercial capital. But whatever it takes, as the Chancellor said, cannot become no questions asked. And it's for that reason that we have this event to ask some of the questions. Conditions are going to change and so must policy, often at the same bewildering rate as when we went into this. So if the point is to restore normal times, when will normal rules come back? Normally, we worry about impeding the workings of the market with government spending. Normally, when money is tight, we worry about where it's going to go and where it can make the most difference. Money is going to become incredibly tight for the Chancellor. So we're here to debate the next phase of this crisis. What can be done to make the current interventions more effective? 
How should the interventions change as economic conditions become more normal? Given that the crisis has uneven, uneven sectoral impacts, should interventions reflect that, treat each sector differently? What happens if things get worse and not better and a liquidity crisis becomes an insolvency crisis? Should we start talking about equity and investing in Britain? And finally, how can we achieve justice for the taxpayer if she's underwriting so many private shareholder returns? So we hope to pick up more questions from you through the Q&A as well, but I'd like to first hear from Nikki Morgan. Nikki, if you were chairing the Treasury Select Committee, where would you be focusing your attention now? Giles, thank you very much indeed for that introduction. Thanks to the IFG and the FSB for putting this uh, event uh, on. Um, I mean, look, I think if I were in the Treasury Select Committee now, um, I'd be doing what Mel Stride has done. I think the first role I always felt with the Select Committee was flushing out immediate problems. And I think we all know uh, that the, I mean, the government support, as you said, has been unprecedented. And that's a word that we keep using for this whole situation and the response. Um, uh, you know, I think uh, you mentioned the fact that we worked together almost 10 years ago. Um, gosh, those days in coalition seem pretty simple uh, now. But, you know, it was hard work turning the economy round. And we were dealing then with a, a significant national debt and deficit uh, that had to be uh, paid off and, and the deficit had to be narrowed. Um, and good progress has been made. And, you know, that was what uh, you would have expected a Conservative Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, to be focusing on in the next few years. Uh, of course, um, things look rather different now. We all understand why the debt has gone up so significantly. Um, but as I say, I think the Select Committee, the first thing was to flush out immediate problems. And one of the immediate, um, I say problem, but I think challenges was the banks uh, getting the money to businesses as quickly as possible. And we know, and I'm sure that Martin will talk about this, the FSB and other organisations, uh, CBI as well, obviously, um, were busy uh, pointing out to the Treasury uh, and to the banks where money was not flowing. Um, I was one of those people calling for fintech uh, companies to be amongst those who were accredited more quickly as lenders by the British Business Bank. I think the overall thing, though, has been, um, uh, and we've all been, you know, seeing government up close, the speed and pace at which officials have responded to this has been quite extraordinary. And I think people should feel very proud about that in spite of uh, you know, obviously teething problems. The fact uh, that tens of thousands of companies on that first day when the furlough scheme opened, you know, went through the HMRC website process and that website did not fall over. Um, you know, those involved in government IT projects know that that is not always the story uh, on the first day of new website launches. So, you know, those have been significant uh, wins. So flushing out the problems. And then I think the next thing that the Select Committee uh, would be is, is asking about the future, which is really what we're looking at and thinking about today. Because I think initially we all thought um, there's got to be a bridge. And I remember listening to somebody senior from the FCA saying this at the sort of beginning of April. We're going to try and bridge from March through till you know, June, July, whenever we thought we might get back to some sort of normality. We now know that actually there's, we're not going back to where we were in February, March. We've got a bridge to a new kind of future and that future is going to keep evolving and I'm sure we're going to talk about you know unemployment we're going to talk about sectors and then the final thing is the impact on public spending um, I think the committee was already pushing and, and I had been trying to push for you know what were the new government's fiscal rules going to be um, and we are still waiting I think to hear that um, I was saying I don't think the Chancellor has given evidence to the Commons Treasury Select Committee yet I think he's given it to the House of Lords uh, Economic Affairs uh, committee. So that will be another big uh, question. I think just look, a couple of other thoughts on what we're going to be uh, discussing uh, today. 
Um, I, I think the, the government, the, the balance between the needs of business and the needs of taxpayers, at, at the end of the day, it's all intertwined. You know, we need successful businesses um, and you know people who are employed to pay their taxes, to pay for the essential public services, particularly health that we have seen. And I think to provide sufficient funds to reform social care, which has now become it was pressing already. It's absolutely imperative now uh, that that is um, a part of public policy that is looked at very, very uh, swiftly and see how that's uh, working. Um, I think in terms of um, working with business as it tries to, to, to restart, I mean, you know, Giles, you mentioned uh, different sectors. I personally think there is going to have to be some differentiation between sectors, uh, particularly those sectors that because of the rules on social distancing simply cannot open. I think we will have to draw a distinction between and we know that there are many businesses not being ideal, but it's possible to work from home, possible to to be productive, uh, but there are others. And so my former job as culture secretary, um, you know, it's it, it's it's devastating to see theatres and music venues, um, you know, not being able to, to reopen the news in the festival hall this week, uh, that they might not be able to open until next spring. Um, uh, you know, uh, that's, we, we know, we need to keep that going. Frankly, I think what this crisis has shown is that social contact is very important. Um, I think many of the arts and culture venues have done great work in trying to get their stuff online so people can enjoy it. Um, and we need that part of life to, to flourish uh, again in our uh, country. Um, you know, we, we need organisations like the National Trust to be opening um, uh, so that people can get out and have a reason to, to get out and start to acclimatise uh, uh, again. Our high streets, I don't know what's going to happen. There will be gaps. There'll be shops that just don't, businesses that just don't open. Um, one of the really interesting things about this is the psychology of customers um, and, and us as individuals going out and spending. I've seen, I'm sitting here in Leicestershire, um, I've seen huge amounts of support, mainly via, via social media, Facebook, for small independent businesses who have turned their hands to takeaways, uh, to uh, to providing you know uh, services um, in a in an appropriate way, people want to support small businesses. I don't know what's going to happen to those big online those big uh, uh, chains um, that are going to find it. I suspect quite hard to to, to reopen. Um, infrastructure spending. We might come on to that. Obviously, my former role, broadband. I mean. Crikey, you know, without broadband, we would not be doing this. Uh, it has become, if it wasn't already, a, a major utility. Um, and I think the investment in that is very important. Um, I think just finally, employee flexibility. There are some employees who won't be able to return to work for whatever reason. Childcare, um, having to continue to shield. So I think that's going to be a challenge for employers. Um, there may be people that they're relying on to come back who won't be able to do so. And we were discussing before about whether there's more flexibility in the way people work. Some people won't want to carry working from home, but others will. And I think that's going to be um, uh, it's not it, it, things are going to evolve. And just because people are working in one way now doesn't mean that's what they'll be doing in a few months uh, time. So I'll stop there. But I think it's some great challenges. I also think the levelling up agenda is going to be very important for this government. And I think there's some great opportunities as well uh, to to really uh, you know invest in some of our uh, our capabilities uh, across the country. And I'm absolutely certain the Treasury and the Prime Minister are going to talk about that soon. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nikki. A lot of real food for thought there. In particular, I think, I mean, your example of theatres, I think that's going to be one I'd be interested to hear people reflecting on because it's survived 300 years of various crises, plagues, in fact, wars and so forth. We know there needs to be a theatre sector. Yeah. How do you keep it going? I might come to that question yeah. later well, when we all we do more Q&A. But in the meantime, Martin, I mean, you've been tirelessly getting the government to improve and change its schemes to get more money out. Would you give them any marks out of 10 right now? 
Yeah, I would. I'd give them very high scores. But I mean, let me let me just start by talking about what it is small businesses and our members in particular have needed during this crisis. I mean, the number one thing they've needed above all else is cash. I mean, if you went back, say, six weeks ago, there was 30% of businesses by most survey records were about to run out of cash by the end of April. And the, there was real worries that uh, Siebel's was starting to sort of fur up. They weren't getting the, the, their funds out. And that there was a really big chance that lots of decent, um, profitable businesses were going to go down. The second thing I think most people would say in business is they need good advice. You know, safe working is something that they are, they are, uh, they, Virtually nobody has got any practical experience. There's probably a lot that can be learned from some of the bigger retailers, but you know, safe um, safe working advice, I think is important. We're now going into sort of test and trace regime where we'll need good advice on how that will work in practice. One of the other things that comes home over and over again is that the core enablers with business, transport and schools, they're absolutely critical. They're probably more important than any other factor in how we will get this uh, businesses back up and running. Um, there is there is another factor as well. There are a lot of uh, business owners that are, are starting to wobble about what the future will look like, and they will. That I think in the next few weeks, the government will need to boost the confidence of those uh, business owners that they have got a future. There is a long term prospect of a decent bounce back. Um, I mean, in a recent survey we did of nearly 6,000 businesses, 15% of them said they were going to close when this uh, crisis was over. So, you know, that if that number sustains, then we are in for a really big problem in uh, the back end of this year. And then looking a bit further forward, a lot of them have borrowed money because they simply think, well, there's no choice. They're on life support. They have to get money into the business. But they've loaded their businesses up with debt, and they now know that they're going to have to do something to try and recover their balance sheets in the future. Um, so there will need to be options. I think you you referred to them in your opening remarks about how can you how can you recapitalize these businesses. But if there was one so a big plea I would still say is don't lose your nerve. They, mm. they are asking government to keep a sustained progress. Don't don't wobble halfway through this process now. It is working, so just keep it going. I mean, you asked me whether what you what I thought of the government's response. I mean, I, I've got to say it's astonishingly good. Um, you'd have to give them probably the eight out of 10 based on current current performance. I mean, the JRS, Nikki referred to it, is genuinely groundbreaking. It is astonishing they have been able to bring it in so fast. And it took real courage and leadership. And you have to give credit, you know. We are, we are all skeptics in this business, but there is, a, there is real courage and leadership that's gone on that's managed to push these schemes through. And we, we were very, very strongly in support of the self-employed income support scheme. We lobbied very hard on that. And, and there's similar amounts of, I mean, the, I have to say, there was a lot of skepticism within Treasury. And they overcame that. They overcame their doubt. And they've supported it. 
As far as Sybils is concerned, well, they got off to a really poor start. But what you've got to give government credit for is they were really responsive. They listened. Mm -hmm. They listened to all the problems. And bounce back loans, I mean, I would say we're, we're talking, it, it's probably saved maybe half a million businesses that could have could have gone bust. So you're talking in terms of th these very small businesses, maybe two and a half million employees who would have been out of work if that if that scheme hadn't got up and got going as quickly as it did. So these are these are enormous achievements. The one big blot I would say probably is the the treatment of uh, owner directors in small companies. You know they they have fallen through the cracks. I, I just think it's one of these things that governments decided is just too hard to do. So how do I see government now? Well, I think, frankly, after the last week, it's a bit distracted and a bit exhausted. It seems it, seems it needs to regain its composure a little bit. This is definitely a marathon and they need to sustain the, the intensity right through to the end of the year. JRS, I think, the biggest mistake would be to to crash it, it and they're, they're talking about perhaps a 60-20 taper in the first step you know i'm hoping there'll be announcements later today um the targets i think that everybody needs to keep in mind is that there are a lot of good upsides you could end up with a much more productive uh, economy you could have you could end up with more digital training better digital skills um I think they could end up being bold enough to reform some of these sticky problems like national insurance contributions, business rates, fuel taxes. They're things that have hung around for ages and they will have an opportunity to sort them out. And I think um, when it comes to um, net zero, they've got an opportunity to try and deal with those as well. So what does the company, what does the government do in the future? Well, I think uh, it needs to recognize that um, there are some real community heroes out there in the business community. It needs to get that message out that there are people that have gone way beyond the core of their business mm -hmm. to support their local communities. And they need to give credit for that. There needs to be a more flexible um, job retention scheme. I'm hopeful that things will be said later today that might uh, introduce that. Um, the, as far as uh, self-employment income support scheme, I think there's there's good signs that they're not going to lose their nerves on that and uh, they're going to be a tapered extension of it. I would, um, I would say that they need to encourage bigger businesses, a lot of Josh's members, to concentrate on uh, supply chain support. They were, there were some really good steps in, in the early stages, and I think the government can do a lot to use its influence to get that going again. Um, the, with the, the spending review and the budget coming up, there's a real opportunity to stimulate demand. They could do a lot, and I'm going to mention that terrible word that we'd almost forgotten. They could do a, a lot to lift the bre Brexit cloud. They could, uh, <laughs> in many ways, they could in many ways uh, ease some nerves on immigration and customs controls, which are going to be coming through to people and having to, to worry about them at the worst possible time for a lot of small businesses. And I would like to see something akin to a student loan company being used to deal with the debts that overhang this, uh, uh, this debt crisis that we will have uh, generated. 
So there are a few thoughts for the future. Martin, that's, Martin, that's phenomenal. I, we were joking amongst ourselves before the event began about the importance of keeping the weekend sacrosanct. I think you've basically ruined the Treasury's weekends out to Christmas <laughs> with that to-do list. Um, so uh, with no further ado, I mean, Josh, have you got anything to add to that long list of things the Treasury needs to be doing? Well, it was it was a tour de force, wasn't it? And I think, you know, any any government that gets eight out of ten from Martin is going to be pretty pleased. <laughs> a rare that. I'll I'll, tr I'll try. I agree with with everything Martin said. So I'll tr I'll just try and find some sort of different perspectives rather than um rather than repeating it. I think what struck us at the CBI. Look, let's be let's be honest about it. There were lots of questions about the relationship between business organisations generally, CBI included, and the government back in January. Um, you know there was lots of debate, and actually that switched instantly. Mm -hmm. And the government has been very very good genuinely wanting to listen to businesses and business organizations that meant very very quickly they actually did understand the challenges that so many businesses face because the challenges have been monstrously complicated um first of all of course on on staff um whether that's simply capacity being down because of people self-isolating or the much much more complicated question about how you really safeguard staff health in the workplace how you treat them when they're off and i think government understood the complexity of that demand side we were talking earlier about about car manufacturers where demand totally dis dis disappears and that you know that being an absolute blocker for businesses but also supply chains being hugely disrupted so i think it was really important that government actually got the the range of issues that business were facing and then acted fast and really boldly martin's talked about about civils about furloughing I'd, I'd also mention the guidance that all of us have worked so closely on. I mean, sitting in rooms in bays, helping government to actually pull together the sort of guidance that genuinely helps firms on the ground rather than shackles them or leaves things too ambiguous. And the feedback from firms on that guidance has actually been really, really positive. And it's helped businesses to get up and running probably more quickly than they otherwise might be. So I think that's, that's been very, very good. Second thing, I think, deserves recognition is the open admission that a lot of this stuff won't be right first time mm. because when you have to move at scale and speed you're going to make mistakes and actually being clear about that has really helped us to talk to our members and say the government is still listening whether that's on introducing the bounce back loans because civils weren't moving fast enough um, whether that's on the announcement we'll get today later about um, flexibility and, and, and the job retention scheme, uh, whether that's about the guidance right from the very beginning, because remember the, the guidance has been in place since lockdown. What we're seeing now is just that it's just the next phase actually changing bit by bit. That's been reassuring for businesses because they know if something's not working for them, the conversation is still open and that, and, and that can change. And I really hope um, that that engagement and that open mind stays beyond the crisis because because what businesses are thinking about now is what next? Um, again, we've talked about the specifics on furlough and civils and, and, and areas like that, and that totally needs to continue. But it's those big questions about how we build that better. You know, what's the vision? What, are the, what sort of economy are we trying to build for the next 10, 20 years? Um, because the decisions we take as we rebuild now actually have a fundamental impact on the way we tackle sustainability the way we address the levelling up agenda, the way we make sure that work is, is, is fair and good. So I think getting that vision together 
and making sure it's as unifying as possible. So uh, the, probably the, the, the last thing I really dwell on is the thing that the government has done well, but is going to be a real challenge, is that unified voice. As throughout lockdown, throughout the stage we're at the moment, and as we look to the future, confidence is absolutely key because we're going to be living for the, with the virus for a while. Mm. Um, it, it looks like anyway. Um, if employees aren't confident, they won't go back to work. If customers aren't confident, they won't come back and shop or provide their customs to, 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 to other sectors. And if government can continue, businesses, government and unions speaking together with one voice as much as is possible, actually that helps with that confidence. And that's been, it's been challenging at times, we all know that. But actually, if you look back, it's been pretty good in that regard. And we need to continue that. We need to continue that having a helpful first approach as we go forward with a unified voice and some really big visions about the pillars that we want to build into the economy now. That's the next challenge. And I think that's something that, you know, business absolutely relish getting involved in that. Uh, and we hope the government will be as open on that as they have been um, uh, to the current crisis. That, that's fantastic, Josh. It's a really interesting reflection that if you read op-eds about the Treasury three or four months ago, remember February the 13th and the Saj being thrown out and the sense that the Treasury was beaten down. We've all since been singing the praises of this astonishing department's really quick behaviour. And I would have thought they want to continue it. But in particular, the, the B word that Martin mentioned, they're going to, that's the logical next thing they need to continue it with. So it'd be really interesting to see if they can keep getting permission to say we need to work with business on this because it's in many ways much more complicated um, than a straightforward collapse in business. But on the subject of the Treasury, before I turn to the audience's questions, I want to ask one of my own, and I've been asked to play the role of the Grinch-like Treasury official that was somehow locked in the cellar for a few weeks while all these schemes worked out. But we know still is there and still needs to be there, in my view, because the deficit's going to be huge. But also, and it's a point I made in my report quite repeatedly, we want an economy that does normal things like bankruptcy laying people off, hiring them again, all of these normal processes that actually the British economy is really good at and helped us recover in that 2010 recovery. Normally, when companies go bust, the Treasury doesn't say, we need to stop that happening. It's because coronavirus is really special, a really big exogenous event. But as we move out of the coronavirus crisis into what you might call more of a normal recession, um, at what point should we be saying, look, normal processes need to apply, we can't have a government guarantee on everything, I mean, how on earth are they going to make that judgment? Um, can I ask you first, Josh, and then Martin and Nikki, reverse order? Well, I mean, I think you're absolutely, absolutely right. It's, got, it's going to change. Uh, what's the role, um, broadly speaking, of sort of government in situations like this? It's actually to support the market, but to step in where there's market failure. And of course, coronavirus is essentially, a, you know, the market is not built to cope with something like this. So it's absolutely right that there is unique and unprecedented support, and there has been. We're already starting to see it change. So we will hear later today, I expect, from the Chancellor about, as we've discussed, the changes to the job retention scheme. And one of those fundamental changes that is challenging is that element of an employer contribution. And, you know, what, what's that designed to do? That's actually designed essentially for, to, to push employers to think, are the jobs that we are supporting through furlough, do they actually still exist? And it's that philosophy that good jobs in good businesses that will exist on the other side of this crisis should be protected because it is cheaper to do that actually than to deal with mass unemployment 
in the long run. And that's forgetting, obviously, the, the, the deep social impact of, un, uh, of unemployment. So I think we are starting to see those questions being asked and the schemes evolving. Uh, and that is, that's absolutely government's job to find the right way to intervene in, the mar in a market failure in order to, to plot a sustainable path out. But yeah, going into lockdown, blunt, brutal, fast. Uh, coming out, nuance, really, really difficult. You're going to be, e even with furloughing, um, you're going to be having firms that can't reopen now. So how do we support those? Because if you've got no income coming in, then the idea of making a, a contribution to support your employer, employees, nice though it may be, is simply simply not viable. Um, track and trace, even questions there. What happens if your um, if your employees are have to, have to self isolate for a, for a fortnight because of track and trace regime? Um, do they go on stat statutory sick pay? Is that actually a disincentive to obeying the rules because you 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 lose money? What's the support there? Whole sector examples. This is I, I don't we don't have the answers to all of these yet. The Treasury don't. What I can say is if the spirit that we have had over the last few months of boldness, sensible, practical decision making together continues, then we stand, I think, a really good chance of plotting our way out of this. Fantastic. Um, Martin, so wait, how long do you think these 100% guaranteed loans should be part of the government suite? Some people say maybe forever. Where are you on that? Well, I can see that for uh, a big chunk of them, they'll manage to pay them off within the six years that they've got. The loans are, you know, meant to last six years. There will be quite a few businesses that will be able to meet that kind of timetable. Um, but for a big chunk, they won't. Now, I think we've got, to, we've got to look at something that's probably akin to the Chapter 11 rules in, in the States, where we try and protect business owners from um, the really bad downsides of having to, you know, uh, admit that their business isn't viable under the current climate and move on and try and re regenerate a new business. Now, if, if they're going to be dragged down constantly because their failure during the COVID period is a sort of black mark that they can never recover from, then that I think is going to drag our economy down for decades to come. So we do need to look at that seriously. And I know government is looking at a lot of these areas, but that that's an area I'd put a high priority on, especially if the Grinch, as you call them, coming out of the, the cellar in the treasury says, well, you know, what about future debt? And how do we get back to a, a sort of uh, vibrant economy? I think that's the answer. Great. Uh, Nikki, I mean, I, I'm not going to keep asking you to don that old hat of yours, but there's huge amounts of money being spent here. As Martin alluded, some of it might actually be spent and never gotten back. Uh, at what point is that a serious concern? Because, you know, not everyone gets it. So is it fair that billions might be used on people who don't operate in the economy? Well, I think it's about explaining, and I think this is part of the job of the politicians, is to explain why taxpayer support is necessary, why actually it benefits all of us, even if people aren't working in those businesses, um, uh, you know, why it's supporting our, our public services. And um, I think we should never, um, you know, I spent quite a lot of time as an MP just explaining uh, to people about, you know, who pays taxes, how much, you know, where the money uh, goes and, and everything else. Um, I think we'll have to accept that, as Martin says, I mean, there's a, there are um, some loans that will never be paid back. Um, I think we will need to look at potentially converting uh, some debt into equity. Um, and, uh, you know, we have a model in terms of the bailout of the, the banks. 
uh, and uh, UK government investments in terms of managing that. I think we, we need to understand this is going to take all of this is going to take a long time to, to overcome and to unwind. Um, and so, you know, whereas 10 years ago we thought, right, how quickly can we start to, uh, uh, you know, cut public spending, uh, potentially look at uh, tax and everything else? I think this is going to be a much longer trajectory. But Josh is completely right. And, and I think nuance is hard for government to do, but it is what's needed as is, I think, transparency and explanations, which is where the select committee comes in, if you're able to, to get those explanations as to how government is making decisions. But already we've seen that there are some sectors um, and, you know, the, the airlines, for example, um, some of whom feel quite hard done by that they haven't had uh, the, the support. Um, but equally, I think the Chancellor was right to say, you know, big companies should be considering whether there are other ways for them to get that investment in first. And I think you have to say that if their investors aren't willing to stump up any more money, is it right for the taxpayer to do so? Mm. Whereas there are other sectors uh, where actually there isn't um, a big uh, investor sitting there or an ability to raise money on the markets. Uh, and so they will need support for, for longer. Um, I suspect the government and ministers are going to be really keen to be avoid being seen to pick sectors but I'm not entirely sure that's going to be completely possible to avoid that uh, because we're, there are some sectors, as I said before, just because of the social distancing rules that just will not be able to operate. But we do overall. And I think, you know, the prime minister will see this. You know, things like the arts and culture, he will see that we need those to be as, as a, a great place to, to, to live. But it's going to take longer for them to get back on their feet. I think that's a really good point. And you make a really good point about investors, which is that the last time we had this crisis, the financial market wasn't operating. Exactly. And so we didn't have that extra lens on things. So I noticed early in looking at this report that even a big cinema chain, and the cinemas were all empty, managed to raise half a billion dollars. Exactly. So investors were looking at things and the government has to take that into account, yeah. partly because it gives you really valuable information. Now, Turning to some of the audience's questions, one of them dovetails brilliantly with one of Martin's great points about, um, Ian Courtney asks, the government scheme is all about debt. Given that no right-minded company wants to leverage their balance sheet, should there be more thinking about debt to equity? And I was always very struck that if you take out real estate, there was only about 100 billion of SME debt in the economy before. We've just added 30 in a really weak economy. This is not all going to be affordable. Martin suggested a really interesting idea, like a student loan scheme um, for, to help companies get out. So in other words, I assume you only have to repay if you're doing well enough, like the student loan scheme. Um, Martin, have you guys been putting a lot of thought into that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, the, the tricky part about the student loan analogy is that you've got to find an incentive for businesses to, to sort of generate the um, the profits to repay the loan as opposed to sort of flopping at some point in the future and avoiding it. Now, I, I think that work can be done on that. We can find a way to provide the right incentives for people to, um, you know, try and repay the loans, but in a way which ultimately, if they feel that it's just not going to be possible, that a student loan kind of arrangement comes in where they where it's written off or they pay back at an affordable level, a very low level, which doesn't sort of strangle the business in the future. So, I, and I think your point about bringing um, new capital in is really important. The really difficult thing is though, I think some estimates are that it it's something like a hundred billion shortfall uh, of new capital required in the business, of which probably about 30 billion into small businesses 
who traditionally would never have gone into the capital markets, would have no idea, wouldn't want to share equity. So you're going to have to come up with something that is pseudo grant, uh, uh, some form of long term loan or maybe a three I type version, you know, that, that is likely to invest money in these businesses. But we've got to get really imaginative in the next sort of six months because that problem will be with us probably in the early part of next year when people's VAT bills start coming in and their and their uh, tax returns have to be paid. That's when the crunch will come. Josh, have you guys been thinking about equity and grants as well? Yeah, I've been doing a lot of work with Martin, and I sort of have to have to also mention City UK, um, particularly in, yeah. in, in terms of mm-hmm. equity. I think I, I think the FSB are absolutely right that um, for many for many particularly smaller businesses, actually giving up equity is absolutely last resort. But but we may be in last resort territory for for a lot of those businesses as well. I think what we're seeing is is a couple of different parts of thinking emerging from government. One is, I think we had confirmation last week about um, Project Birch, um, which is the the way in which you can identify and help those strategically important businesses across the economy. Uh, And I think that is is important. It's been looked at in a very different way now, of course. You have to factor in your thoughts about China, about about economic security. um, and, And has the virus actually pushed us as a country to think about in a, in a slightly different way. So I think some very interesting and important work going on there. And then, of course, you've got the um, the almost the sort of thinking about creating a sovereign wealth fund. Um, and what's the role, what's the what's the approach that UK could take it, taking that, which we'll be working um, with Martin on. So I think no simple answers, but absolutely right that we're asking these questions, looking at how government can, can support. And it's probably going to need a little bit of a mindset change from some businesses as well. And um, when you mentioned Project Birch and strategic sectors, and it, it reflects on something Nikki was talking about earlier with the creative sector, that's one. The next question from the audience, um, should there be special arrangements with respect to furlough for hospitality, cultural, creative sectors? Nikki, I'd be, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this because we don't normally think of the creative sector as strategic, but London, I mean, London is so dependent on that. And a lot of people wouldn't want to live in London if there wasn't a, a theatre or cinema or entertainment sector going on there. So, I mean, how would one go about trying to help that sector? Well, I mean, I do think that, um, yes, I think there should be. Uh, I mean, we'll see obviously today about the announcements on the furloughing uh, scheme. Um, and of course, different institutions are going to be in different financial positions. I think Arts Council have done a great job working with others and trying to support the um, uh, creative uh, sector. I mean, actually, I haven't got the numbers in front of me, but the creative sector is it's a phenomenal. I mean, I, I was at a CBI launch of a, you know, the creative uh, sector document only in what January. Um, you yeah. know, the creative sector um, generates, I think it's more money combined than aerospace, automotive, and I think life sciences. So I think it is strategically important. And it is one of those sectors that puts the UK on the global map. You know, people will visit here and obviously we know our tourism sector is going to be um, uh, unfortunately hugely uh, affected. Um, you know, they'll, they'll visit for cultural uh, icons and, and visits as much as, as much as anything else. So I think whether you extend the furlough scheme, whether um, perhaps there is a slower tapering, um, so there's more government support for slightly longer until venues are able to reopen, um, whether there is a specific, as we've seen, the sort of charities funding, whether there is a specific extra uh, funding uh, that goes that goes in, whether we um, 
I mean, you know, we're going to live more of our life online, for example. So and a lot of the arts sector have already been thinking about how they reach out to more audiences, you know, across the country, across the world, whether there is more investment to help them to uh, to do that. Um, our TV uh, sector, for example, program making, you know, support for that. I mean, it's interesting what Josh is saying about the guidance, which I have to say, having as a as a director of a very tiny little company, I read the guidance on shops and retail suite. I thought it was excellent. It was it was practical. It gave me reassurance that we could do this and what we had to do. Uh, so making sure that there is guidance that's kept up to date as to how venues. So it's interesting. Um, in South Korea, for example, the theatres have stayed open. Um, and they have had very specific guidance on audience conduct, obviously on the conduct of performers, social distancing and everything else. So I, I think the sector, I'm sure it's up for reimagining how it does things, but it's going to need that extra support for a bit longer, I think, before it can reopen. Now, I, I, I've displayed one of my standard failings, which is to think too much about London. Partly it's because I'm looking at these beautiful pictures of London and the workplace. But there's a couple of really good questions coming about the regional aspects of support. I'll be interested in hearing your views, in particular, I understand, via, um, via Twitter as well. So from Tom Forth, who does really good work on regional um, disposal of government finance, he's asking well, why we don't yet have data on where the business take up of these schemes is regionally. Is this deliberate omission or something that the government doesn't particularly want to discuss because it will look rather skewed in a certain direction. But also um, local enterprise partnerships, the creation of that coalition government while we were, yeah. were there, Nikki. And at the time, we did worry that these were very underpowered institutions and they didn't have the ability to dispose of funds like their predecessors, the regional development agencies. Um, is there, should we be using local eyes on the ground more? Because according to another question on Twitter, they're saying that the gap, the picture we're painting is very different from the one that you feel from a local government perspective. So into that mishmash, can I ask um, first Josh and then and then Martin on what they think about the local aspect of all this? Um, yeah, I don't know about the, 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 the breakdown of, of, of figures, but I think what is interesting is you're seeing in some ways a lot of Metro mayors actually coming into their own at the moment. Um, the, the, the work that they're doing to actually, you know, reach out ac across the regions and build, turn essentially what were regional industrial strategies um, into recovery plans. I think there's a lot, a lot of good work going on there. But a couple, a couple of thoughts sort of more broadly around it. One is consistency is quite important. So this isn't just about the regions in England, but about the devolved nations as well. I think everybody, every business realises that things may happen at different speeds in regions, in terms, particularly in terms of restart, um, because the virus moves at different speeds, but a real call to actually have similar philosophies. Um, different speed, OK, but let's not have fundamentally different rules, because that makes it very, very hard for, for, for businesses to operate. And the second is, separate from the, the way in which um, local authorities, etc., have responded to the financial need, as we think about the renewal of the economy, it poses some really interesting questions around devolution. You know, if if one of the key ah, dramatic impacts of this crisis, sadly, is likely to be relatively high levels of unemployment, actually, how can devolution, investment in infrastructure, investment in skills, really tied to a vision for that region that complements the region for the country, drive drive revitalization in each area how does that tie into um, the prime minister's leveling up agenda so i think i know it's not quite the focus of the question but i think the really interesting thing is what does this do for devolution in the long term martin um 
I mean, we did we did a big survey on the impact of the government schemes, and and we we do have local and regional uh, variations. But the one thing that seems always to come out of these is a sort of anti-London uh, uh, sort of narrative, which I don't think we're on about uh, trying to set the rest of the country against London or make constant comparisons with London or assume London is doing somehow better than anybody else. I mean, I live in the northeast of England. I'm more acutely aware of the, than anybody of the differences that, that can exist about investment. But I think the most important thing is that we recognise that there will be different needs. And I, I acknowledge what Josh is saying, that there should be subtleties in the way in which we approach it and that government, central government should reflect the kind of advice they're getting from Metro mayors and, and LEPs. The one area that I would caution against is if LEPs become the vehicle for providing a lot of this funding, if I happen to live in Greater Manchester, or I've got this enormous LEP, brilliantly funded, loads of people, some of the LEPs are tiny with virtually no support and, and, and it would be a complete lottery that it, it would just mean that if I happen to be in the wrong part of the country, I could be ill served by that. And I think that would be a big mistake. Right. Um, there's a couple of other interesting questions moving us in a sector. I mean, well, one of them, they're both long term questions. I, I, so I'm going I'm to group them both together as a long term. Um, Albert Wright asks, he asserts that aviation should look after itself, but aviation is a very large sector. So we might want to unpack that. Should it be the same for motor industries, electric cars? And this has me putting on my industrial strategy hat, which is what I wore under Vince and Theresa May. Sometimes a sector has the kind of long term cycle that you can't just say you can fall over and you'll pick it yourself up again. There's long term investments that you lose and you lose forever. So um, I think we've discussed creative as a potential one. If, if we didn't have a theatre industry for a, a year or would we have one in two or three years time? Is, so that's the kind of how are we going to make those kind of long term project birch style statements? Because when we were designing industrial strategy, we did look to things like aviation and cars because we thought when Nissan comes in or British Aerospace or Rolls Royce, they make investments for five, 10, 15 years. But or does the crisis change what we regard as strategic? The other long term question, which I should um, pay attention to. Actually, it also comes from Albert. Albert's been very prolific. Um, should the cost of business support be paid off over a 10 or 20 year period? In other words, I mean, should we take this aside, package it up, 0% guilt, and just not worry about it for a while, you know, like a sovereign wealth fund? And Mickey, your, it's your turn. So my answer to the latter one is, 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 is definitely we should be considering that. I do think we're going to have to think about this debt in a different way um, because, you know, the, the size of it and because of the, the speed at which things were, were put in place. Look, if, if businesses are able to pay off their, their, their debt quicker, then, you know, we should enable them to, to, to do so. Um, and Martin's point about student loan company, as I was reflecting, I was just thinking, well, I hope they're not going to have the interest rates of student loans, which is another whole issue which we looked at mm. uh, in the select committee. Um, and uh, but, you know, I, I do think separation, it's very um, I'm not sure about strategic whether I mean, the industrial strategy, a huge amount of work obviously went into that, as you will know, Giles. Um, and I think, again, there was always nervousness about picking sectors. But I think we you know, the government did try to look to the future. What is it the UK does really well? Um, I think we do and offer, you know, high tech, advanced manufacturing, you know, aviation. 
Um, it depends what you're talking about. You know, aerospace is quite different from tourism, from airports, for example, to you know the, the businesses that supply uh, airports. So I, I think we need to unpack that as to what exactly it is that we that we do. Um, but I do think we are going to have that. You know, the government is going to have to be more interventionist, which will be less comfortable for a conservative government. But it is the right thing to do. And I think actually it's what Rishi and the prime minister have shown they are absolutely up for doing. And I think with the support of the business organisations, now, that's really, really uh, important. And just can I just go back quickly on the local authority point, only because I'm married to a local authority leader. Uh, so I we discussed this quite a lot. I think one of the unsung uh, successes also has been the grants that were got out to the very small businesses uh, and the business rates holiday. But business rates, the fact that one of the first things that had to be suspended was business rates just shows that the system, again, absolutely. This is one of the other big things, I think. We know it needs reform. Select committee looked at it. Um, they published a report just after I'd gone back into government. Um, you know, we can't. We we if, if we have a system whereby we have to suspend rates immediately for businesses immediately when this happens, that 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 is not a long-term sustainable system anymore. And government's going to have to bite the bullet and reform it. Wow, Josh. Um, okay, a couple of thoughts. One is I don't know whether we want to call it industrial strategy. Industrial strategy seems to carry so much baggage for so many people, but we need a plan. Um, we need that vision for, for, for where we're going to take the country. And I suspect probably um, it focuses on three key areas. Um, one is infrastructure. You know, if we can now, there's there's a lot of capital in the pipeline to spend on the infrastructure. What can we bring forward? Mm. Um, well, how can we make sure that that is actually prioritising a green future? So is it retrofit on houses or new or, or new builds? What forms of transport? What about what, what about renewables? What can we actually do to really turbocharge that? Because that's I know it's not quite this simple, but a lot of that is bringing plans forward. Um, second area is um, education and skills. Yeah, I've mentioned the unemployment risk. Um, one of those things alongside business rates that I think business organisations might have mentioned as the apprenticeship levy um, <laughs> that hasn't that hasn't been working. No, um, no okay. Um, um, how can we actually, particularly at local level, join FE, HE, um, apprenticeship providers, businesses, um, government together to really train for the future, those digital skills? And the third is um, innovation, that R&D target, that digital connectivity. These are all things actually we can do. Um, and we should be really focusing on those because not only do they create jobs, they set us up for the future. So I think there's a real, in terms of industrial strategy, there's pillars, those drivers, as well as the sectors. The one thing I'll say on aviation, and I totally agree, it's hard to pick winners. One of the things that the decision that the government's taken on quarantine has shown is how important aviation is for the whole economy. Mm -hmm. Because this is the, the, the impact of quarantine. Now, mm -hmm. If it's necessary for health grounds, of course it's necessary for health grounds. But the reason that we need to be very, very clear about that is the impact it has on engineers coming to fix machines in manufacturing plants, um, on medical transports, on exports, on freight, um, of putting, putting that policy in place. And that shows for aviation that it isn't just this, it's not just about the planes, it's actually, it's an enabler for the whole economy. And when we're taking decisions, we need to think carefully about that, whatever sector we're talking about. Great point, great point. Martin? Um, I mean, I won't repeat a lot of what's been said by Josh and uh, I know I know that you know we would support most of what Josh has said but the 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 one thing that I think we probably are going to run into trouble with is on sectors because 
they aren't as simple to define as a lot of people seem to think they are, right? There's loads of supply chain uh, providers to sectors that don't fit neatly into a sector description. Mm. So if you try and put some sort of protective barrier around one particular sector, you will invariably leave lots of people out of it. Uh, A classic example is pubs have been forced to close down. There are loads of suppliers to the hospitality industry that would never describe themselves as hospitality companies, but they will be seriously hurt by this. Mm. So I I think we've got to be a bit cautious about using that sort of crude, well, we need to protect certain sectors because I I don't think in practice it works too well. I, I strongly agree with you, Martin, there, and I believe it's the same comment that the Chancellor made to the House of Lords Committee a couple of days ago, that it's also, and to, to impersonate that Treasury official again, you want some sectors to shrink and some to grow. It might well be the case that if you try to put a protective wall around one, you're just forestalling what needs to happen. I mean, and it sounds brutal, it's very easy for us to sit here and say this, but if some sectors need to shed labour and they need to go into other places, that sectoral protection might end up making us a bit rigid and continental. Now, we have um, five minutes left. I wanted to make a quick comment. I mean, Josh, I've considered myself quite old, but I can't remember being young enough where we weren't talking about infrastructure and skills and how now more than ever we need to bring this forward. You must have sat around a lot of these same round tables that I skulked around as a special advisor when everyone said how important it was to do infrastructure and so forth. We're going to move on to a demand boosting phase of this recovery as it becomes a normal one. Is that really, if you if you had that emergency weekend meeting of the Treasury, you've got £20 billion to somehow get out, to get confidence going again and to help bail out the whole economy. Is that where it would go? Well, I think a lot of it would go actually there there, and and in the three areas I mentioned for two two reasons on infrastructure. Um, One is there is something about it that builds your future. Um, You know, we need to be greener. Um, We need to be more digitally connected. Um, That's stuff that we we just have to do. The second is it, it creates jobs. Um, and that, and I think that is that is going to be important in the in the short term as well. So it does feel like it t- it, it ticks to those boxes. So I think yeah, it is it is important, but it's necessary but not sufficient. You've got to do that al- alongside. Um, I'm not sure if I've dropped off. No, no, no. no, no. Uh, well, it's a funny screen up suddenly. Um, yeah. You've got to do it alongside the the skills um, development in, in in particular. So it may be something we've talked about for a long time. Um, but that doesn't mean it's that's probably because it because it's important. It doesn't mean it becomes less important. Right. And, and Nikki, if you were if you were Treasury Minister again, you've got a 20 billion call. Would you choose it to put it into Martin's recapitalization scheme or or Josh's infrastructure building scheme? <laughs> Forget you fighting. <laughs> I think, I think I what, it's, very, it's a very difficult uh, uh, choice. Um, I do think infrastructure, I mean, undoubtedly, Shovel-ready infrastructure projects are going to be phenomenally important in keeping things going. Um, And I would certainly argue for digital connectivity. Um, But I also think in terms of, I mean, we have an immediate, in terms of skills, you're right, we talk about this a lot. We do have an immediate cohort of school leavers and graduates coming out of universities this summer. And I think a scheme to support them, uh, many of whom have unfortunately been told that the the, the jobs or whatever they were planning on doing is not going to go ahead in the same, same form. I think if we were able to persuade businesses, so perhaps rather than capitalising them, um, persuade businesses that with support from the government, could they take those people on so that they begin to build up their work experience and skills and everything else? Um, I think that would be um, 
and I think for a government to do that for, for our young people, uh, a particular cohort, you know, you've got a very defined cohort uh, would be a significant boost. Martin, I mean, that's reminding me the phrase, remember the phrase NEETS, not in employment, educational training. We thought we didn't have to use that again after the great growth in employment and attendance. Martin, is that something you worry about? People cut off from the labour market? Yeah, I do. And, uh, you know, I, I sit on the low pay commission as uh, one of their commissioners, business commissioners, and it's clear that the scarring of young people who um, go through a period of unemployment and can't get back into work is really serious. Um, and there could be, as Nikki points out, it could be a, a whole group of people coming out of university, coming out of colleges that just simply can't find work. And we are going to run into really long-term problems if we don't address that. When it comes to the 20 billion, apart from spending it on my pet scheme in the uh, student loan uh, arrangement, but the, the, uh, the, I think we're now shifting the balance away from maybe physical transport more towards digital infrastructure because it clearly, you know, this, this demonstrates it. We are going to be much more dependent on digital infrastructure in the coming years. And, and I think that obviously has to take the priority. I think that's a really that's a really good point to finish on, in fact, that if we ever, God help us, have to get into this sort of situation again, I don't think any part of the public would forgive the government not enabling it to have the infrastructure you need to be at home and indeed yeah. enjoying more institute for government events like this they'll be, they'll be <laughs> furious i can't imagine the anger so um, with that um can i thank you all uh, i'd like to thank the federation of small business particularly for support of this scheme baroness nikki morgan great having you here i hope we get to see you again soon you too josh really fantastic thoughts there martin thank you so much for turning up with all those ideas we're gonna go around and try and work on how to work them up now but thank you everyone for watching and uh, look forward to seeing you again sometime Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.